Hello, and welcome to the Energy Pioneers Podcast, a show dedicated to the legacy of the pioneers of the offshore oil and gas industry. I'm energy historian Jason Terrio. Each podcast episode features stories of industry pioneers whose leadership, grit, and technological expertise built the modern offshore industry in the Gulf of Mexico and around the world. For more than two decades, the Houston-based Oilfield Energy Center, now the Energy Education Foundation, has honored these legendary men and women by inducting them into the OEC's Hall of Fame. The stories you will hear are from the Hall of Famers themselves, whose original interviews have been digitally remastered and preserved for posterity. In the 1950s, as the emerging offshore industry grew, the technological capacity to drill in water depths greater than 40 feet seemed an insurmountable obstacle. While submersible drilling units, like Doc Laborde's Mr. Charlie, proved resilient and effective in drilling wells in the shallow waters of the Outer Continental Shelf, oilmen knew that their prolific salt dome structures and oil and gas reserves would be found further out in deeper water. But how to drill out there and produce hydrocarbons from the deep ocean? This was a burgeoning engineering problem that aggressive companies like Shell Oil and others sought to figure out. Along came a young naval architect at Shell named Bruce Collop, who applied principles of wave dynamics, innovative mooring systems, and novel structural designs to develop the Blue Water One, the industry's first semi-submersible floating mobile drilling unit. With the Blue Water One, offshore pioneers like Bruce Collop solved the problems and pushed the commercial drilling depths beyond 600 feet. Bruce Collop, a New York native, graduated with a master's from MIT in the early 1950s. He started with Shell in 1954 and immediately went to work designing and building scale models of floating drilling platforms. His innovative ideas and designs made possible the creation of a new generation of mobile offshore drilling units, MODUs, that were capable of operating in deep water under harsh conditions. Somewhat by accident, I went to MIT, was trained in a course called Marine Transportation, and then eventually got a master's degree while I was teaching there in naval architecture. That required a thesis. Everyone else was towing ships down a towing tank. Uh, that seemed like an old world boring subject. Uh, in 1954, the offshore industry was just getting started, and I can assure you in Boston it was faintly heard. One of the, the subject I picked on at that time was stability, because the ocean industry was not certain how to measure whether something is stable or not. And these new devices that uh, only one had been built at the time were unlike ships. So I did it, what should I say? mathematical and theoretical research on what would constitute stability. That same uh, thesis leads one eventually to how things respond in waves. Uh, if they respond well, they're more stable. If they don't respond as well, they capsize and sink. So that uh, then encouraged me to go to work for an oil company. Shell was a company that didn't have any naval architects. And I thought, well, there's a place for a fellow. And I went to work for Shell in 1954. 
At the time that Bruce Collop joined the company, the offshore industry was in its infancy. Companies became entrenched with the use of swamp barges and permanent wooden piling structures for producing wells in shallow waters less than 20 feet. Engineers were just beginning to understand how structures, floating and fixed, would respond to unpredictable wave and wind forces of the oceans. Not the least of their concern was the ability to design structures and marine vessels that could withstand the punishing forces of a hurricane. Certainly one of the things that was least known about was waves. Uh, being trained at MIT, I was trained that the waves went in circles. It was called the trochoidal wave theory. The concept of periodicity of waves, uh, the concept uh, that there was a part of the force due to velocity, part of the force due to acceleration was unknown, at least in the, all of the literature I read about. But there were just enough known of this thought that waves, as we look at them, have natural periods. That is, they occur, if you watch crests go by, roughly from every five seconds to 15 seconds. Things that had floated, such as ships, uh, were designed to go through the water with the least resistance. What we wanted is something that could stand still and not be subjected to the waves. What in the world would a device look like that wouldn't move with, with the oceans? And it wouldn't look like a ship, so yes, you had to use your imagination, creativity, innovation, whatever the word is. So actually some money had been given to research anchors. I can remember thinking to myself, I said, shoot, caveman put a rock on the end of a piece of rope. Uh, what can a fellow do about anchors? So I used those funds to design a device that would have a natural period of pitched roll far beyond the natural period in the oceans. Uh, that was tested at the University of California. Uh, we tested it to the extent one could with an Elecom computer in 1955-56, and uh, that gave birth to what eventually would become known as a semi-submersible. Although submersible drilling units like the old swamp barges and the recently commissioned Mr. Charlie provided a commercial application for drilling in shallow waters, nothing yet existed to venture out deep into the waters beyond 40 feet. Most of the industry believed that any development beyond that mark would be cost prohibitive, if not technically implausible. But Shell had bet its future on the offshore and it leaned heavily on the creative genius of young innovators like Bruce Collop to propel the company into this new ocean environment. Uh, it was one of my first assignments. Uh, I was a naval architect. I don't think the people in Shell exactly knew what naval architects were or what they should do, but uh, they sent me along with a man by the name of Tom Graham with Otico to look at the plans and, and for the keel leg of Mr. Charlie and come back and say, is this a good idea or isn't this a good idea? I guess my question, I can still remember meeting in the office and as I mentioned, I'd been interested in stability and I said, how do you know that this thing is stable while it's starting to sink before it hits the bottom? Well, the glib answer at that time was, well, we're only going to sink it in water depth so that if one corner 
touches down, it can't turn over. If you sink something that's 120 feet wide and 20 feet of water, it can't turn over. And that concept, uh, really for 10 or 15 years, when these were towed, they were towed around the bottom topography of the Gulf of Mexico, always in a water depth where they could not turn over. No one went across the deep water. Uh, it was a very circuitous thing. I uh, put the question to them and then did some calculations of my own to establish that it was inherently stable during its sinking modes. Uh, it was not with that rig, but a rig called Margaret when I t convinced them to tow it across deeper water than they had planned on. Shell Oil made a calculated gamble to bet the company's future on finding and producing oil and gas offshore in the Gulf of Mexico. In the book, Offshore Imperative, historian Tyler Priest documented how company managers relied on the technology developed by the expert geoscientists and engineers like Bruce Collop to secure the company's long-term profitability. Its survival as a domestic oil and gas producer hinged on its success offshore. During those critical post-war years, these technological developments shaped the company and the modern offshore industry. Shell had committed itself to the offshore. I'm digressing here just a moment. A man by the name of Ned Clark was executive vice president, and five of us had been hired. I was the naval architect. And in effect, the thesis was that other major oil companies had vast holdings on land from, for which they could use to explore for oil and gas. For a variety of reasons, Shell did not have these land holdings. And Ned Clark said, if our future in Shell is any place, it's going to have to be offshore. So first a technical services division was formed, and then a, a group of us to work specifically on floating drilling. So it did kind of open up the avenue that if Bruce Collip wanted to come up with something entirely different, uh, since we were going into an entirely different province that no one else was going into. We weren't following anybody. We were going to be a leader. We were going to be a technological leader. We needed to be a technological leader to have these opportunities to find oil and gas. Uh, so the concept was accepted. Um, I guess with the success of the test at the University of California, where I tested it versus a couple other model shapes, uh, to the extent the computer programs could verify what I was doing was probably correct. Um, I was 28 years old. I wasn't uh, sufficiently old where I worried that much about things. I charged ahead, and I guess perhaps to another benefit was that there was no one in Shell who was trained in this area at all. So no one said, uh, do you know what you're doing? Have you checked this? Uh, I can remember vividly about two weeks after Blue Water One went to work, one of the senior officers who had promoted this came into my office and uh, he said, I finally got out to Blue Water One when the seas are 18 feet. And he said, I think I'm starting to understand what you're talking about. And it kind of hit me as a young engineer. Uh, my God, they did take my word for it. Fortunately, it worked out. There was some apprehension on the part of the crew. Uh, I recall two welders who came out and uh, 
they cut off a piece of iron, or part of which fell in the water, and I said, you know, that just fell 400 feet. And they said, it did what? I said, yeah, it fell roughly uh, 100 feet down to the water and then 300 feet down to the seafloor. And he said, oh, I don't think so. He said, we're sitting on bottom. He said, we're not moving. And I said, no, you're floating in 300 feet of water. Uh, both of them quit. <laughs> this was a water depth that uh, man should not be and man should sit on the bottom. In 1961, the converted Blue Water One left port from Ingalls Shipyard in Pascagoula, Mississippi on its maiden voyage. Following extensive sea trials, this first-of-its-kind semi-submersible rig sputtered a record-setting offshore well in 297 feet of water at Grand Isle Block 110. A year later, Shell Oil announced the details of its new floating drilling platform. With an eight-anchor mooring system to hold its position, this versatile super rig was equipped to operate in 600 feet while floating in place. That first year in operation, the Blue Water One drilled several exploratory wells. After seven years and seven million dollars of research, Shell Oil had finally proven the viability of drilling and producing oil and gas from depths previously unattainable. 92-year-old John Lacey, another offshore Hall of Famer, rode out on Blue Water One's first voyage with Bruce Collip. He graciously agreed to join our program to share stories about those pioneering days offshore. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thanks, Jason. Uh, yeah, I was on the board the Blue Water Rig when it went out from Pascagoula to the Gulf of Mexico to its first location. Uh, it was the culmination of several years of research and development into deep water drilling and completion. And uh, Bruce, Collop had been a part of that effort from the very beginning. Had been a, he not only been a part of, he had been a major contributor. Not only had Bruce uh, completely responsible for the development of the uh, semi-submersible, but he was also uh, responsible for the mooring system, uh, complex mooring system that was developed to hold the rig in place over uh, over well when it was being drilled. That first mission out to the Gulf of Mexico was Bruce and others was a super secret. And we but we knew if we got it right that we'd be a, it would be a game changer for the both Shell and for for the industry in general. I spent a lot of days on that rig helping to resolve any problems with any of the equipment that I had worked on. And many of the problems that had to be solved on the fly, but we made it work. And the Blue Water One went on to revolutionize the industry. I continued to work on offshore structures and marine risers for several more years. And I can tell you that Bruce Collop left a huge imprint on many of the developments and innovations that made deep water operations possible and commercially available. He is one of the reasons why Shell became a leader in the offshore technology. I think it led us on to what uh, was a program involving mobile offshore drilling units. Uh, it certainly led them into water depths that no one else could drill in. And that was very strong in their mind, both in the Gulf of Mexico and on the West Coast, that 
we could operate off of uh, Northern California, Washington, Oregon in severe weather and deep water and also in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, so one could acquire leases at these lease sales for a relatively small amount of money. One could acquire lots of leases in the Gulf of Mexico as compared with the competitors. And uh, Shell said about that, accomplishing this goal they wanted, they wanted a place offshore like other majors had on land. I think because it was the place we were going to have to play uh, this concept of mobile offshore drilling. Drilling a well and abandoning it with a mobile drilling unit was foreign to the oil industry. I was part of the group that in effect looked into that. Other people were building fixed platforms, were building templates and tenders to reduce the cost. There was money dry holes. Uh, we in effect sat down and made a study somewhat statistical for its time that said it is better to drill a hole, keep drilling holes until you know you've got a commercial reserve and abandon those holes. Now the oil industry had never done that. Uh, there are several articles in the Oil and Gas Journal and others where in effect it says Shell drills 12 dry holes. Well Shell didn't drill 12 dry holes. Shell drilled 12 holes that it abandoned. Some of those that later came in and put fixed platforms on. So uh, I think it, Shell deserves some credit. Uh, there were three or four of us that promoted the concept of this mobile drilling unit and in fact why it was the desirable way to approach the offshore. Today it's accepted as if that's the way you do it. Uh, up until Blue Water 1, uh, oh, 100 feet, uh, Mr. Gus, uh, and I think offshore 50, two could operate a hundred feet of water, which everyone thought was dramatic. Uh, floating drilling started at 300 feet of water, and the rig was designed to go out to a thousand feet of water. Following the success of the first semi-submersible, Bruce Collip worked on designs of fixed and floating platform structures and how to make them more stable and safe in a harsh marine environment like offshore California, a Cook Inlet in Alaska, and even deep waters of the Gulf well beyond the 300-foot mark. Uh, I think at that time the deepest platform was in about 80 feet of water. I was in charge of operations on the West Coast and the first Cook Inlet platforms. Uh, and uh, it was kind of intriguing to me um, how should one design and how should one structurally tie members together in a platform. Uh, and once again, no one knew what a naval architect did, although he built structures that went to sea. Therefore, he must know answers to these questions. Um, in my first year, this was the Gulf of Mexico, I'm returning to a civil engineer came to me and said, how in effect do you tie the template into the deck section? Uh, Naval architecture, we use a lot of models. I remember I went home that night, bought some straws, and looking at the straws, built this, took it to them, and by golly, that's the scheme they used. About 
six months later, I was at American Bridge in Orange, Texas, uh, going to look at an offshore rig, and they weren't quite ready for me. And he said, would you like to see a tour of the yard? And as I walked down the yard, I saw a, uh, in effect, a wellhead template jacket sitting there. And I said, who is that? And at the moment, the name of the major oil company escapes me. And I said, why did they do it that way? And they said, well, you know, that's the same way Shell does it. And they know what they're doing. <laughs> and I thought, oh, dear. <laughs> I hope it's my straws were a good idea. strong straws. So, uh, and I guess part of this gets back to my comments of imagination. If you don't let yourself be constrained and think about something, you can imagine the answers. We built Blue Water too. While I was on the West Coast, we built the Cook Inlet platform. Uh, Blue Water Two being, I guess, the third semi-submersible, the first one on the West Coast. Uh, it was built in San Francisco. Um, Blue Water One had the drilling floor and what we call the spider deck or the lower deck where BOPs land and other things over one end. I did not want that. Uh, I was told by people very senior to me that it was safer to have it out there. Uh, I tried to explain that if the well blew out, we were 300 feet above it and whether it was in the center or something, we, in fact, we had uh, very formal drill would, in fact, winch off the hole. So uh, I couldn't understand the safety. I suspect it was partially if it had not, uh, it was a hedge, if it had not worked well as a floating drilling rig, it could have sat on the bottom with the floor cantilevered over one end. It could have con continued to drill out wellhead jackets. Uh, by the time Blue Water 2 came around, uh, we demonstrated that uh, it was feasible and workable, so the uh, rotary table was at the, in the center of the rig. Uh, the reason the center, uh, it isn't a pitch and roll, it's a heave consideration. As one lands casing strings or drill pipe, if it's out over the end when that weight is released, uh, he, the vessel heaves or pitches up uh, markedly. Blue Water One operate, or Blue Water Two operated very successfully off of. I was aboard on its maiden voyage when we had oh, 140 mile an hour winds, uh, waves in excess of 60 feet. Uh, yeah, we didn't have time to evacuate. We were the only rig out there. I sent all the work boats in. Uh, I got everyone up. Had them all put on life jackets. Uh, I fired the oceanographer who had forecast 10-foot seas. Uh, we were in the, making preparation to move the rig. Uh, it rode very nicely. I'd forgotten about two guests we had. They slept through the whole thing. Uh, when they woke up the following morning, the storm, the height of the storm was throughout the night. I said, well, this ought to show you what a semi-submersible can do. And they said, what do you mean? And I said, well, we had this true uh, <coughs> Our deck elevation was about 80 feet, and we had solid water coming over the deck. Uh, so that's why I judge the wave heights. The anemometer carried away at uh, uh, around 125 miles an hour. It just blew off the rig. But, uh, Where were you? Off of Point Reyes, California, yeah, north of San Francisco. 
near uh, Bodega Bay. The deep water drilling capabilities of the semi-submersible rig fleet gave Shell a competitive edge in the offshore and in offshore lease sales. Shell led the way into the deep water areas while others followed. In the mid-1970s, the company pushed the frontier boundaries of deep water beyond the 1,000-foot water depth with the development of Cognac, the largest fixed platform ever built and installed offshore at the time. Bruce Collett played a significant role in the design of this monumental engineering marvel. Uh, I decided I needed some broadening. I went to Lafayette, Louisiana that had uh, you know, three or four thousand wells. Uh, I remember we produced about 40,000 barrels a day. Uh, offshore, you, you get to almost personally know the wells. And here is a vast array of small producing wells. It was quite a different environment. Uh, interesting. Uh, spent several years there and then went back uh, oh, into, in effect, a head office group that kept changing its name. Uh, what having to do with the offshore. Yeah, I was there. I was had a big hand in the project called Cognac, deepest water platform for its time, perhaps ahead of its time because it's the only one that had to be built in three pieces because we couldn't transport it in one piece. That then gave birth to how in the world do you jo join three big steel structures underwater out in the middle of the ocean. and uh, The anchoring, the handling, the launching, and the maneuvering one over the other, yeah, was my responsibility. We put down this base structure, and if you can picture the Astrodome, the base structure would, uh, is larger than the Astrodome. The Astrodome would fit inside of it. It's loaded to the seafloor. It's somewhat precisely positioned down there in that we have bottom topography and uh, the seafloor is not flat. So mud mats and other things were designed for a particular configuration and a particular spot on the seafloor. When it was launched the, the first year, uh, oh, I had many tugs, many captains that assisted. It was the first time anything had ever been launched that had lowering lines. It was attached to it. It was launched off the barge. Everybody wanted to get it to the seafloor as quickly as possible in the event of a hurricane. And so the lines to lower it were launched. Uh, I can remember calling a meeting the night before we launched and I said, have all the captains come up. I want to explain to them what we're going to do. And uh, I had too small a room. I'd forgotten how many people were involved. Uh, the other memory I had now, uh, they each had their instruction, and I said, uh, when, if everything has gone all right, you've paid out the amount of line you have after launch, and everything looks okay, sound your whistle. We had several other lines of communication. I recall the launch took place, and all of a sudden I heard all these whistles, and I remember talking to the senior McDermott man, and I said, do you know how many whistles we heard? And he said, no. So the following year, we, uh, you only sounded your whistle if you had a problem. <laughs> uh, the next question is, here is something that's uh, over 400 feet square, and it has to be lined up perfectly. Other people, in effect, designed a cone and a docking pin that would drop from one section into the other. 
one on either end. When he's lined up, one piece was lined up with the other. Okay, the, my challenge or role was first to launch it, then to maneuver it, and to lower it so that uh, it lined up. Then somebody else hit the button to drop the pins. We went through a great deal of uh, practice, dry run simulation. Uh, this is, I'm trying to remember, the early 70s, so computers and things weren't what they are today. Uh, it took some time. We launched what would be the midsection. Still remember, we were about 250 feet away from the section that was sitting on the bottom. And in effect, told the computer people, rather than moving up step at a time, let's go for the whole thing. What can we lose? So we dialed in all the computers, and it's quite a interesting mathematical problem that really other people solved to have this hanging mass. We made the maneuver. There was television cameras. All of the scenarios described that if docking pole one lined up, then you would dock, drop it, or if docking pole two lined up, and there was various devices so that if one lined up, you couldn't drop two. As the piece settled down, someone said, I think number one's lining up. And we sat there and watched the other camera, and by George, number two lined up. And I still remember sitting there, and I said, well, Fantastic. Well, it wasn't my role to push the button. And I said, you know, you're here. Uh, success was not part of our scenario. <laughs> it was five hours later when they decided what to do. <laughs> uh, yeah, we were prepared to get one or the other lined up. We were not prepared to have two lined up. Shell's gamble in the offshore paid off. Within a decade, the company would be exploring for oil and gas in thousands of feet of water, culminating with the tension leg platform concept that revolutionized deepwater operations in the Gulf of Mexico in the 1990s. Company managers placed considerable confidence in people like Bruce Collop, whose job it was to come up with innovative ways to solve problems that had not yet existed in the industry. They were truly blazing a new trail into the deep without much of a playbook to follow. I found in Shell, and in fact, Ned Clark wrote an article, I think, for the Petroleum Engineer. Uh, and in effect, he said, uh, you know, to meet this challenge, it's uh, we have to have the best in technology. We won't necessarily be able to hire the smartest people, hopefully, with hiring enough of the right people, we can incorporate others into our technology, so I think there was a, oh, the company was willing to let me and others bring in other people, uh, expertise into this. Uh, there was certainly in the early days a very heightened sense of security. Uh, Blue Water One, Oh, no one can visit it in the yard, no, no plans were disclosed. That's why in the literature there's, I have many fascinating articles after it goes to sea on what it is and why it's working. But uh, there's nothing in the, uh, about the development of this.
or about the uh, underwater blowout preventers or the electrohydraulic Christmas trees or the ROVs. It's all done in secrecy, partially for the reason you asked earlier. They wanted to maintain a competitive technological advantage as long as they could. It was certainly a willingness on the part of management uh, to let this happen. I, I know they didn't understand what we were doing. Uh, I guess we all should thank them for their willingness to accept that what we were telling them uh, was the answer uh, to provide the money and the, uh, to allow it to, to happen. Bruce Collip's career with Shell spanned 34 years. He received numerous accolades and awards for his pioneering achievements in the industry. In 1991, the National Academy of Engineering recognized Bruce for sustaining pioneering leadership in devising innovative ocean engineering technologies. In 2002, the Offshore Technology Conference presented him with the coveted Distinguished Achievement Award. Known in the annals of industry history as the father of the semi-submersible, Bruce Collip passed away in 2017. I think what I've found throughout my career in various stages, people have said, well, you've solved the problems. You've conquered the offshore, you've conquered the ocean depths, you've uh, and at times, uh, I don't know, we've conquered what we understood at that time. Um, it's still amazing to me the things we continue to create, uh, the problems we continue to solve, our ability to drill uh, in seven, eight thousand feet of water, and it's commercial. Uh, there was times when people said anything deeper than 30 feet of water would never make money. Uh, from our abilities in exploration to our abilities in the equipment we used to drill and produce, we've come up with innovations, revolutions, uh, technology. Uh, it's the story of the offshore is not dead. Uh, it's not a history. Uh, I don't know if we're in our midlife or where we are, but uh, there's a lot left and a lot of excitement left in it. Uh, I find it fascinating today. This concludes our episode of the Energy Pioneers Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Terrio. Stay tuned to more episodes and be sure to check out the new Energy Education Foundation website at energyeducation.org, where you can find the full listing and stories of the Offshore Hall of Famers. And if you ever come to Galveston, Texas, be sure to visit the Ocean Star Offshore Drilling Rig Museum, which pays tribute to the men and women and companies that built the offshore oil and gas industry.